From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guest today is someone who has played an important role in my pursuing the creation of the Optimism Institute. After reading one of his books and watching his 2018 TED Talk, Is the World Getting Better or Worse? A Look at the Numbers, I was encouraged to believe that helping spread the messages he espouses would be a worthwhile endeavor. His name is Steven Pinker. Steven is an experimental psychologist who conducts research in visual cognition, psycholinguistics, and social relations. He grew up in Montreal and earned his BA from McGill and his PhD from Harvard. Currently Johnstown Professor of Psychology at Harvard, he's also taught at Stanford and MIT. He's won numerous prizes for his research, his teaching, and his books, which include The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, The Blank Slate, The Better Angels of Our Nature, The Sense of Style, and Enlightenment Now. He's an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, a Humanist of the Year, a recipient of nine honorary doctorates, and one of Foreign Policy's world's top 100 public intellectuals, as well as Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world today. He was chair of the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary and writes frequently for the New York Times, The Guardian, and other publications. His 12th book, published in 2021, is called Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. So it goes without saying that it's an honor to host Dr. Pinker on the Blue Sky Podcast, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Stephen Pinker, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you so much. Stephen, you've worked on a wide range of fields in psychology, including deep dives on language, vision, human relations. How did you get to the subject of spreading the news that the world is actually getting better? How did that spark your interest? Uh, Anyone who advocates uh, a uh, rich theory of human nature, that is the theory that we are not blank slates, immediately faces the worry that that will doom us to all of the uh, the, the, the social sins and harms and uh, troubles that we're faced with now and that there's no hope for improvement. You you can't change human nature, as the saying goes. Uh, If you uh, advocate that we have a, a rich endowment from our evolutionary legacy. Uh, does that mean that we have a uh, genes for war or a, uh, innate selfishness or uh, ex- exploitativeness? And so there's a resistance even to the uh, scientific hypothesis that anything is inherent to human nature from the political fear that that would um, make hopes for improvement futile, a, wa- a waste of time. So I pointed out in my book, The Blank Slate, and even before that and How the Mind Works, that there's, in fact, nothing in the uh, proposal of a rich human nature that rules out social progress. First of all, because the mind is extraordinarily complex. And even if we do harbor inclinations toward greed and competitiveness, dominance, revenge, sadism, lust, 
and so on. We that's not that all there is in the mind. We we also have a, a capacity for self control, for empathy, for cognitive problem solving, yeah. for uh, moral norms, uh, and indeed the cognitive component, as uh, as we externalize it through language, is infinite in scope. We can have ideas about our ideas about our ideas. We can combine old ideas into new ones in an uh, explosive number of ways. So there's no inherent constraint on our thinking up solutions to our problems, some of those problems being our own nature. Uh, Moreover, not only is it theoretically possible, but if you look at the course of history, it's actually happened. Uh, Slavery was abolished and, and criminalization of homosexuality and the Soviet empire collapsed with virtually no violence. Rates of homicide had come down since uh, since records were first kept in the Middle Ages. So uh, there can't be a debate over whether progress is possible. It's happened. When I made that observation in a blog post one year, I then got a, uh, a set of papers by email and, and uh, commentaries by people in, in a variety of fields who said, oh, you know, you could have added to your examples of violence having declined over the centuries. Uh, I was told that that rates of uh, death from war had come down significantly since the late 1940s, that homicide has declined in every country for which there are records going back several centuries, that uh, child abuse is in decline, um, domestic violence, rape, the uh, bullying and and, uh, kids picking on each other, all of them have uh, gotten better. And that kind of vindicates the idea that there's nothing in our nature that prevents us from improving our lot. Now, we may never be able to have a perfectly harmonious utopia in the age of Aquarius, but we can, we can worry about that when we've cut the rate of violence down by, uh, by half and then half again. Uh, whether we can ever get to, to zero uh, is a problem for our descendants. We shouldn't try to get it to zero, but we should try to get it much lower than it is now. And despite studying this and, and, and knowing these facts of, of incredible world improvement, you, you resist the label optimist. When people say you're an optimist, you, you, you resist that a little bit. Why is that? Well, optimism is a, uh, a, a dimension of temperament. It's largely heritable as are most dimensions of personality and character and temperament. And why should you take an assessment of the world seriously just because of the, uh, uh, you know, some, some guy is in a good mood a lot of the time. Maybe you're not in a good mood a lot of the time, but, but you know, if you're a scientist, it, it, there should be facts about the world that don't depend on your temperament or your inclination. And w- what I do and what, what surprises people and what, what they confuse for optimism is simply presenting a view of the world and of history that's based in data rather than uh, stories and narratives and anecdotes. The problem with uh, storytelling or anecdote provision, or for that matter, journalism, is that it's a non-random sample of the worst things that happen on Earth. And so it gives you a misleading impression because the good things either consist of things that don't take place, like a region of the world that hasn't had any wars, uh, or often things that change by a few percentage points a year, which can compound changing the world, but that never unfold on a particular day or a particular year, giving journalists and historians something to write about. Right. Bad news happens very quickly and very dramatically. Good, these good news, it takes sometimes generations to actually see it and track it and 
know it's happening. Indeed. Or, or you see it if you're de- the denominator of your fraction is all the opportunities for something to happen and your numerator is the bad things that do happen. Then if the number of bad things diminishes as the number of opportunities stays the same or even increases as population increases, uh, that is uh, a sign of, of how far we uh, have come or, or are coming that's completely invisible if you simply follow uh, events and, uh, and and images. And I interviewed Richie Davidson at University of Wisconsin, and one of the things he said about bad news selling or staying in our mind better than good news is that, I'd be curious your take, he said that the brain is good at detecting difference and that it's kind of reassuring to me. He said, you know, the vast majority of things that happen in the course of a day or our lives is, are good, but our brain detects the things that are outliers and different, the bad stuff. Does that ring true to you? Well, yes, we are. There is a negativity bias in, in human psychology. We uh, remember bad things more than good things, at least in the recent past. With the passage of time, uh, even though we remember bad events, we tend to forget how bad they were at the time. So the emotional coloring changes, even if the memories uh, stay. But certainly in the recent past, we are more attentive to negative things. We're more stung by hurts than we are buoyed by praise. There are more words for negative emotions than positive emotions, presumably reflecting the the, uh, reality of our emotional um, spectrum. So, yeah, there is uh, a built-in tendency to, to, to focus on the negative amplified by the inherent nature of journalism and history. I appreciated hearing Stephen describe how he arrived at the conclusion that human beings are capable of making continuous progress. Yes, he says, we have in our nature tendencies towards violence, selfishness, and other ugly characteristics but we also have within us a cognitive component that he describes as infinite in scope. Because of that, we are capable of rising above these bad impulses. I also like the way he talks about whether he is naturally himself an optimist. I've asked others whether they think optimists are born or made, and Stephen points out that his own positive view of the world comes not from his personal makeup, but instead from a scientist's appreciation for empirical facts and data. He also points out that he's not always in a good mood. And by the way, dear listeners, neither am I. But when we do get down, it can be helpful to pull ourselves back up by taking stock in our own surroundings and taking a broader view that reminds us of so much that's right with the world. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted Stephen to talk about why we are so prone to glorifying the past to the detriment of our ability to appreciate the present. And you've also used the term hindsight bias. And I I was a history major. I love history. And it it really frustrates me sometimes how people will say, and, and you reference this in a TED talk, that you know, 2016 was the worst year in American history. I'm like, seriously? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. and, and Kevin Kelly, I think, said, if you read the news, you'll think that things have never been worse. If you read history, you realize things have never been better. And, and I just... I don't understand. You're in an academic setting. What is it about our inability to, to to help place today in terms of history and just how much better we are doing? The idea that for all that might have happened in 2016, that more than a few people, I checked editorials, described that as the worst year in American history. What does that say about us and how we think? 
Well, there's always there's another phenomenon in addition to our uh, cognitive psychology and our memory, and that's our social competition. And I think Thomas Hobbes said it best uh, uh, more than 350 years ago. He said, uh, competition of praise inclineth toward a reverence of antiquity, for men contend with the living, not with the dead. Which is to say, to criticize the present is a way of criticizing your rivals. So if you want to set yourself apart from people and say that I'm superior to all of my fe- fellows, you, you point out how terrible things are, how much everyone else has been screwing things up, and uh, the past is a point of reference, namely, look, look how, how much worse my contemporaries, my rivals, my competitors have made things. And this is especially true in among intellectuals and academics, which often take a, um, an adversarial stance toward the institutions of their country, toward the, the business, government, uh, the military, religion, civil society organizations, where there's an unarticulated, but I think widely felt view that uh, society is inherently, uh, or at least modern American society is inherently evil, corrupt, oppressive, that nothing short of tearing it down and starting over with something completely different will, can, can fix the problems. If, uh, and, and as part of that, that narrative, you have to say that uh, things have gotten worse, there's no way that they'll become better. There is, of course, a version of that, on, even though that's concentrated on the academic and intellectual left. We've, in the last uh, six or seven years, we've also seen a version of it on the right in the Making America Great Again movement. The idea that uh, we're living in a time of carnage and uh, decay, uh, and that, uh, again, you've got to drain the swamp, you've got to um, completely uh, uh, burn, burn it all down and start over with something uh, new. That's even though I don't think that many academics would say that. Uh, if you press them, that's often what they uh, are committed to. And you've said, too, I, it, I don't want to call it necessarily intellectual snobbery, but maybe that's what it is. You said once falsely that people falsely equate pessimism with moral seriousness. That if you're an optimist, you must just be a dope. And if you're really smart and really studying, you know, you should you'd be a pessimist. Is that, is that a way to describe it? Yes. I think, I think it was Morgan Housel who said that uh, pessimists sound like they're trying to help you. Optimists sound like they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> <Right>. yeah, <laughs> it's, no, it's true. It, but it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. It, you, it, your 2018 TED Talk, which I have recommended to so many people, and it had a huge influence on the work that I'm doing and the inspiration for me doing this, millions of views. I think your best laugh line because it clearly struck a chord was when you said that progressives don't like acknowledging that there's been progress. So clearly that resonated with people. What, what's that all about? I mean, I said intellectuals hate progress. Uh, Intellectuals who call themselves progressive really hate progress. (laughs) Why Uh, is that? It's it's acknowledging, I think there's uh, an unstated but widely felt feeling among intellectuals. And this, this goes back to the 19th century. The, the Western civilization is in decline. It's uh, it's, it's been cir- circling the drain. Of course, that people have been saying that for uh, for more than 100 years, and it's uh, 150 years. It's still around. Uh, a lot of the all stars in the intellectual pantheon are uh, morose cultural pessimists. Uh, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and Sartre and uh, Foucault. 
just about all the intellectuals uh, uh, that, that are assigned to college freshmen uh, have been predicting the, the, the end of that civilization is corrupt and decadent and, and uh, circling the drain. Uh, so that's part of the religion of the intellectuals. And again, I think uh, to, to put a rather uncharitable um, spin on it, I think it's you know, largely because the different elites in society are in inherent competition with one another. There's a widespread contempt among intellectuals for government, for technocrats, for engineers, for the military, for business. Uh, and there's a feeling of moral superiority to being an artist, an intellectual, a uh, professor. And part of that is not acknowledging that the people in charge have done anything right. Now, you're saying these things not from outside the walls of the kingdom. You you are arguably at the epicenter of a lot of what you just described. You teach at Harvard University. Yeah, I'm a Harvard professor, right? You are a Harvard professor. So how does that feel? I mean, I, I know from being around there that uh, you tend to take issue with a lot of what you hear, both from your colleagues. And then I'd also like to hear about what the, what the mood is like with students in terms of I interviewed Charles Kenny, uh, who's someone you turned me on to, just a brilliant guy. And he he described this generation as the most tolerant in world history. And then he caught himself. He said, with the exception of that whole speech thing. <laughs> and oh, yeah. I just I'd love to know your thoughts on that, what it's like for you to be on that campus in the middle of all these things that you have some some issues with. Yeah, well, there is. I've recently joined with several of my colleagues to form a council on academic freedom at Harvard. Uh, because we've, not just at Harvard, I don't think Harvard is the, is the worst by any means, but we've seen uh, across universities a, a rather surprising culture of censorship and intolerance and uh, character assassination, all in the, uh, supposedly in the service of social justice, of, of combating racism and transphobia and homophobia and uh, misogyny. But which in fact largely consists of trying to tear other people down. And uh, despite the professed uh, aim toward equality, the effect has been to drive a lot of women out of science and out of academia if they depart from party lines, say, on, uh, on transgender issues. Likewise, it's often been African-American scholars who, uh, just despite all of the, all, all of the uh, publicity about fighting racism, uh, if an African-American scholar is, you know, like, like any independent scholar, take, takes his or her own uh, stance on a controversial issue, then, uh, you know, then, then they, they can get canceled or fired. Now, we've, uh, I, I wrote about this in, in the Boston Globe op-ed with Bertha Madras that announced the formation of this council. But, uh, you know, who cares what, happen, you know, what happens at Harvard? Well, for one thing, a lot of people apparently do, I've learned. Yeah. But whether or not they do, and maybe because they do, this can be a, a kind of uh, part of a larger movement to, for starting with professors, but also including students, because a lot of students are getting sick and tired of being told to shut up and that, that they can't say this and they can't say that. But uh, at least you know, we're professors, so that's, that's where, it'll, it, where we begin, to push back against administrators who are too easily intimidated and cowed by by, by protests or by the fear of being accused of being you know, racist or, or uh, transphobic, who just want to make trouble go away. Uh, they, right. they need demonstrators like they need a hole in the head, and so they'll just dispense whatever verbiage uh, uh, makes things settle down. So we're going to be a kind of pain in the neck from the other direction. Uh, we're also going to try to remind 
the community, students and administrators, of why freedom of inquiry, freedom of speech, academic freedom are good things, not not because it's a matter of you know professors have rights, whether or not they do. The, the point is that none of us can ever uh, achieve progress, including progress in understanding the world, unless we can try out hypotheses and see which ones are right or wrong. If we right. there's an orthodoxy, if there's a dogma, you know most ideas are wrong. Um, the uh, you know we're, we're very lucky when we find one that works. We try things out. Most of the dominant orthodoxies at any time are going to be largely wrong. Unless you can criticize them, how will we know? You just are guaranteed to lock yourself into error. And it's a, a especially poignant problem for academia because we're granted all these privileges by the wider society, tax-free status, um, uh, in the case of state universities, direct government support, government scholarships, even for private universities, tolerance of exponentially increasing uh, tuition that families have to mortgage themselves to the hilt to afford. Yeah. What are we giving back in return for all of those uh, perks? Well, ideally, it is knowledge, discovering it and passing it on to uh, the next generation. If we've self-handicapped that very process by just enforcing an orthodoxy, then uh, we're, we're kind of ripping society off. And I've always thought, too, if you can't have that kind of debate in an academic setting, where can you have it? Ironically, you can have it in, 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 in a lot of places outside academia. My, my uh, friend, uh, the civil liberties lawyer, Harvey Silverblade, says you can say things in Harvard Square that you can't say in Harvard Yard. The point that Stephen makes here about undermining our rivals by criticizing the present is interesting, and it makes complete sense to me. And it's also kind of amazing to hear a prominent professor at Harvard express concern that higher education might be, as he says, ripping society off. He goes into greater detail on this in the Boston Globe op-ed he references. It came out in April of 2023, if you'd like to check it out online. It's pretty thought-provoking. What got my attention most in this part of the conversation, though, was his assertion that most ideas are wrong. I'd never thought of it that way, but if you accept that as the case, it stands to reason that keeping discourse broadly open is a way to be sure we don't hang on to the wrong ideas forever. Back to our conversation, I wanted Stephen to comment on why these issues seem to be so particularly contentious today. Why now? Why is this such an acute issue why has it become such a big issue in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so? It, it, there was always, when I was in school, I'm in my late 50s, I think the term political correctness first started and people got a little bit guarded, but it, it is way different today than it was then. Why, what is it about our society that's led us to this place? Well, it has been growing. I mean, I, I saw the seeds of it when I was an undergraduate. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit older than you. And uh, there were absolutely protests, attempts to, to um, silence uh, speakers, uh, claims that, quote, fascists don't have the right to speak. The term political correctness has been around at least uh, since the early 80s, and it, it exploded to public consciousness with a cover story in Newsweek magazine, which I think was around 1990. So we're talking about that's 33 years ago. So it, it seems to be kind of a one-way ratchet. Uh, at least in academia, where possibly because the baby boomers are now the deans and the presidents, uh, and so they're indulging 
the uh, the younger students. Although there is, it is worse and worse the younger the cohort. Partly, it's because a combination of values that justly denigrate uh, racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia. It really, those really are bad things. But it, it has a weapon to people who want to smear or, or neutralize or cancel their rivals by hurling around these these crippling uh, epithets. So we've kind of handed out a weapon. It's magnified by social media because you can easily whip up an outrage mob. Uh, between now and tomorrow, I could you know, easily get you know, 600 signatures. The universities have become more corporatized and they are uh, afraid of bad publicity and their, their uh, chief counsel often uh, kind of sets university policy by telling presidents what they can and can't do. There's a, because of federal mandates, diversity and uh, protection against sexual harassment, there's a, uh, an absolutely exploding bureaucracy of uh, diversity bureaucrats, uh, each one of whom has a staff and a, a chief of staff. Um, and in each, within a university, every you know, school of engineering has one, and the school of public health has one, and the law school has one, one of these offices. And they have to, they need something to do. And, you know, in fact, there's not a whole lot of actual racism on, on university campuses. If you, you know, if you attribute every statistical difference between races and ethnic groups to, to racism, then you can find it by definition because no two groups are ever identical. Um, but to, uh, to keep themselves uh, in, in existence, this bureaucracy will... Uh, we'll, we'll find um, uh, incidents or statements, whether they are significant or not, and they themselves don't have any part of the mandate of the university to discover and transmit knowledge. That's just not their not not, not their job description, not their department. Uh, as they gain power, they can um, uh, shut down the rest of the university. Yeah, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm even asking about this, given the subject of this podcast, is I worry that it it does does impact people's mental health. That 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 this, whether you want to say walking on eggshells or just not feeling like you can express yourself, or or frankly thinking that, you know, approaching a conversation instead of assuming best intentions, getting ready for the worst, to me is just not a it's not a healthy way. And you're, you're a psychology professors, you know a lot more about this than I do, but I just worry that it contributes to young people's sense of well-being. Oh, I, I suspect you're right that, uh, you know, you've got the, the paradox that these kids thrown into dorms with their peers, you know, kind of you know, a, a luxury that I didn't grow up with uh, in, in going to school in Canada where I, I lived with my parents as Canadians do, as people all over the world do. But here they're surrounded by my peers. It's like party time uh, seven days a week. They say they're lonely. They're lonely. <laughs> well, they're lonely because the minute they set foot on campus, there is an army of, uh, of, of bureaucrats telling them, giving them orientations in which they say, if you ask one of your students, where are you from? That's racist. Uh, that, that's a microaggression. If you, uh, if you say, uh, you know, do, what languages do you speak? If you, uh, they, they lay out, they, they set out campus life as a kind of minefield opportunities to be um, smeared as a, a bigot and so they, they they clamp up they stay in their rooms they they're, they're told that if they're that the romance and sexuality are just uh, um, uh, traps to be accused of uh, harassment and rape and so you know much easier to watch porn 
and uh, yeah, but but not not a recipe for, for for mental health. On top of that, they are told, and again, I'm not blaming them. I'm blaming you know us. You know, our, they're told the species is doomed by 2050. There's gonna, the humans are going to be extinct. Uh, they naturally conclude, first of all, well, I'm not going to have children and bring them into a world where they're going to live through it. And also, how much of a positive attitude toward life are you going to have if you're told things are getting worse and worse, that you're, you're constantly being victimized, you're being traumatized? There's a, a significant part of the mental health industry is uh, kind of glorifies trauma and abuse. That's the way you gain status. You know, everyone's a victim. Everyone is has been abused. Everyone is, uh, suffers from trauma. That's kind of become part of our popular culture. It's almost the, as Greg Lukianoff and John Haidt have pointed out, it's the exact opposite of the one form of therapy that we know is effective, namely cognitive behavior therapy, which encourages people to distance themselves from their emotions, not to constantly take their hurts uh, seriously, but to put them into perspective, to have a sense of agency, uh, to uh, figure out what can I do about things, uh, to, to uh, not see the world as black and white, good and evil, with them on the side of good. All of these basic uh, lessons of cognitive behavior therapy are being turned upside down in the current culture of trauma and victimhood. And back to Charles Kenny talking about this being such a tolerant generation, I worry that it it almost goes against that, that it it almost breeds a different kind of intolerance that wouldn't be there but for the but for the influence it sounds like of of the university. Well, yes, it's like uh as as Tom Lehrer said in the introduction to his uh Mordant song National Brotherhood Week, uh I know there are people who do not love their fellow man and I hate people like that. Steven Pinker has clearly developed some very strong opinions here, and I imagine there are some of you listening who are uncomfortable with some of what he has to say. The first thing I'd point out is that it's clear to me that he does care about racism, homophobia, sexual assault, and the other important issues the college administrators are trying to confront. His concern is more with the way this is being done and the potential impact it's having on young people in the college setting. I have no personal experience with what college orientations are like these days, and I'd love to hear from any listeners who have a different take on what the professor has to say. But again, if there's anything going on that, despite best intentions, is creating a feeling of isolation and loneliness, then we at least should be open to discussing the situation and possible solutions. For the final part of our talk, I wanted to get back to some of the positive historical trends that Stephen has described in his writing and speeches. And I asked him which of these tend to be the most surprising to his audience. So back to these these trends that you're so good about pointing out to people about how the world is getting better. Are there, are there any particular that, that you roll out and people are the most surprised by, whether it's violence, uh, you know, life expectancy, all these trends that we, so many of us take for granted. Are there some that you, that you like to talk about that people, you know, question or Google or challenge or just can't believe? Um, there's uh, often a uh, incredulity that uh, um, modernity is more peaceful than uh, ancient times, including cultures beyond the range of government and civilization, hunter-gatherers and uh, horticulturalists and, and uh, pastoralists. 
um, that uh, that their rates of violence were far higher than what we see in the 20th century, or even in the 20th century with its with its world wars. Um, there's uh, incredulity that that many measures of the environment have improved, at least in in uh, affluent countries. Uh, that that uh, waterways are becoming cleaner. That uh, uh, many species are are uh, rebounding. There's often incredulity, even that the in the range of climate forecasts, that the uh, the worst of them uh, is seeming increasingly unlikely. These are the ones that get the most publicity and that assume that we'll continue to burn coal forever or expand coal for coal um, uh, burning. But it seems that the world is moving away from starting to move away from coal, and that uh, this is not to say that we're on track to solving climate change. We're not, but we're uh, not on track to um, uh, civilizational collapse. Yeah, and on, on rates of violence and particularly war, as awful and tragic and terrible as the conflict in Ukraine is right now, I think the fact that it feels like such a terrible exception tells you how much better things have gotten. I, I recently spoke to a group of high school students and explained, you know, my grandfather fought in World War I, his oldest son fought World War II, my dad fought in Korea, and that's just how it used to be. Yeah, and you just missed uh, perhaps uh, being drafted to Vietnam. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. My oldest brother missed the draft by three years, and for all the things that today's generation says my generation left them with, we didn't leave them with a draft and a war that they're all worried about going to fight. So I think even even something like the Ukraine war, again, it's it's awful, and I, I hope there's a peaceful solution to it. It is an exception, whereas 100 years ago, these <laughs> was would have been more the norm. Oh, yes. Well, in fact, 100, well, at least 150. So 100 years ago uh, was after World War One when this the tide kind of started to change, not enough to prevent World War Two, obviously. But um, there, was, there was a huge change in much of the world, much of the, the, the least literate developed world, away from the idea that war was good. Uh, in the 19th century, war was, it was not, not a bad thing, it was a good thing. It called forth heroism and manliness and spirituality and dedicating yourself to a cause. And you had artist after artist and writer after writer saying that the worst thing that could happen would be peace, because then we would be decadent and effeminate and consumerist and, and uh, selfish, uh, and uh, that war is necessary to bring forth all of the spiritual, heroic, glorious, manly qualities. Um, my One of my heroes, uh, the namesake of the building that I work in at Harvard, William James, wrote a famous essay called The Moral Equivalent of War, uh, by which he had in mind not something that would be as bad as war, but something that would be as good as war, but without all the killing. And he basically anticipated what we today call uh, the Peace Corps, Teach for America, voluntary service. He, he thought that young people should be drafted into constructive, peaceful service uh, so that it would call forth all of the you know, spiritual, heroic, altruistic qualities that in his era were thought to be best satisfied through through war. Now, what kind of where we turned a corner wasn't so much um, you know, John and Yoko and Peter, Paul and Mary and Pete Seeger in the 60s, although that had an effect. But uh, the end of but World War One and the, um, the recoil against the unprecedented destruction of that war suddenly made the idea that war was heroic and beautiful and glorious and spiritual and thrilling uh, you know, look a little uh, ridiculous. It's interesting you mentioned draft for for 
public service, my late father would have been a big supporter of that. And one of his things was that if you really want to achieve diversity in any group of people, go back to a mandatory draft. He grew up in upstate New York and Vermont. The first time he shook hands with a black person was at basic training to go to Korea. And that as hard as universities try, a mandatory draft would do a better job. <laughs> it could be true. And of course, the military was the first institution that was uh, uh, systematically desegregated. You uh, asked why uh, there's so much more intellectual intolerance. And one of plausible explanation is that there's increasing segregation by a uh, level of education that people with a college degree, especially a postgraduate degree, just don't talk to people with a uh, just a high school diploma anymore. They don't live with them. They don't go to church with them. They aren't they don't serve in the military with them. They aren't members of the uh, Knights of Columbus or the Sons of Italy or the, the, the uh, International Order of Odd Fellows or the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary. And uh, with the decline of all of these class bridging organizations, uh, people are more likely to sort themselves into mutually hostile tribes. Well, you've been very gracious with your time. And so to wrap up, I'm going to ask you one last very self-serving question. In your 2018 TED Talk, which I will recommend again, you said something about how it's frustrating that more people aren't aware of all these positive trends and you wish, you know, maybe there's someone out there who could be more articulate about it, more passionate about it. I'm making this my full-time mission. So what advice do you have for a guy like me, a voice out in the wilderness, trying to spread this story that Yes, we have huge challenges ahead of us. Climate change is real. Nuclear threat is is serious, but that things are getting better. And if we stay optimistic and believe that we personally can make a difference in continuing this progress, the world's going to be better. What advice do you have for someone like me to actually make a difference? Well, certainly to to align this thrust with the successes of the past, of the decriminalization of homosexuality, and then the uh, the the, the uh, passage of gay marriage the ending of the draft, the reduction of war, the uh, advancement of women's rights, uh, to also remind people this isn't just a mental mindset. It's a uh, based on, on data and that the data revolution uh, should inform our understanding of the world. And it shows that, that, that we uh, uh, have wrought improvements, empowering us and emboldening us to try for, for, uh, for more. And of course, to acknowledge Things that are uh, did not go well. That there was a uh, great increase in crime starting in the 1960s and violence uh, that only started to go down in the 1990s. There was a big increase in civil wars in the 1960s and 1970s uh, that since mostly come come down. But to you know to acknowledge that this isn't some mystical force. It depends on human agency. Uh, the problem and that problems are inevitable. We have no right to a utopia. The fact that there are problems doesn't mean things got worse because yesterday's problems were worse. Terrific. And on that note, I want to thank you so much for your time today, but more importantly, for your example, for your work. Um, you really inspired me. And I can't thank you enough for taking time to be on the show. My pleasure, Bill. Good, good luck with all your efforts. Thank you. talking about the incidence of war decreasing over the years, I appreciated Stephen pointing out how, for most of human history, war was glorified and even hoped for as an opportunity for adventure, to demonstrate valor, 
and even to provide the opportunity for social advancement. Never wanting to miss a chance to quote from Lin-Manuel Miranda's Tony Award-winning musical Hamilton, early in that show, the title character says, As a kid in the Caribbean, I wished for a war. I knew that I was poor. I knew it was the only way to rise up. And if I just planted an earworm, I apologize. Stephen also references mandatory service in a peaceful setting, which I do believe would be a great thing in this country if it were ever to become politically palatable. And lastly, I appreciated once again Dr. Pinker's pointing out that optimism and pessimism are not simply mental mindsets. We're not hardwired to go around seeing always the best or worst, but rather we can take on a positive and hopeful outlook simply by looking at empirical data, facts, and trends. And as I mentioned earlier, Steven Pinker does this brilliantly in his 2018 TED Talk, which I highly recommend. I hope you enjoy this Blue Sky conversation with Professor Steven Pinker, and I look forward to hearing your reactions to it. To that end, please consider leaving ratings or reviews for this podcast series, and also think about subscribing so you won't miss any future episodes. And if you enjoy this kind of content, I hope you'll follow the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening.